You are listening to the Thin Pink Line podcast, brought to you by the European LGBT Police Association. Greetings from Glasgow. I'm Alan Snedden and I'll be your host for this, our first ever podcast episode. Today, I'll be joined by three fantastic guests to talk about the declaration made by the European Parliament which states that the EU is an LGBTIQ freedom zone. Also, the European Commission's first ever LGBTI equality strategy, and what contributions the European LGBT Police Association is making towards the strategy's goals. Also, Elga Europe have just launched their annual rainbow map. What will that reveal? Joining me to discuss these issues from Brussels is Terry Rinka, who is a member of the European Parliament and co-president of the LGBTI Intergroup, and from Paris, Alain Parmentier, president of the European LGBT Police Association, or EGPA for short. We will be joined by Katrin Hugendubel, who is the Advocacy Director at ILGA Europe later on in the show. Firstly, I'm joined by Terry and Alan. Welcome to the Thin Pink Line. Terry, if I can direct this question to you. What was the background and purpose of getting the European Parliament to declare the EU an LGBTIQ freedom zone. Mm -hmm. Actually, the background to this resolution um, is something that is not very joyful and positive, um, but uh, a sad anniversary that we were celebrating in March, or not celebrating, but rather just seeing happen. And that was the second year after the first uh, city in Poland declaring itself a so-called LGBTI free zone. Um, And we took that um, as a sort of um, reference point to say, look, actually, we want to live in a European Union where all LGBTI people can live in freedom. And this is where this idea to declare the EU as an LGBTIQ freedom zone then came from. And maybe just to give you a little bit more of context, obviously in the intergroup uh, in the European Parliament, um, we don't have this illusion that everybody in the EU already, from the community already lives uh, in freedom and equality. We are very much aware of the problems and the challenges there are still for our community. Um, But we wanted this to be a message to the community and also a pledge um, to um, people all across the European Union and that we want to fight for um, making the European Union an LGBTIQ freedom zone. And now as the next steps, we are getting in contact with politicians, civil society organizations from all different levels um, and try to see what could be actual steps, legislative but also non-legislative steps that would make the lives of the members of the LGBTI community better. You mentioned LGBT free zones. For the benefit of our listeners, can you explain what is meant by that term? 
Um, it's part of a broader, very worrying trend that we see um, in Europe at the moment. I think probably in the most ing aggressive and intense form in Poland, but it is not only happening in Poland, um, that there are both rhetoric as well as actual attacks um, on LGBTI rights. Um, and this development of cities um, declaring themselves as LGBT-free zones um, this is something that, as I said, started two years ago and then actually expanded in a very, very um, worrying and problematic pace. And um, now it has stagnated a little bit. Um, and we see also with the international outrage, with the solidarity that came from uh, across Europe, from the queer community to um, the community in Poland, um, that some of these cities have actually taken back these declarations and have kind of understood that this was very discriminatory language that they were using um, and that they were basically creating a hostile atmosphere for people from the LGBTI community. So some indeed have kind of turned back. But we still see that many others um, are not doing that. And really the accounts that we get from Poland, from people, especially young people who are living in these areas, um, are very, very worrying. So there are cases of discrimination, but there are also cases of violence, of hate crime. Um, and this is really something that as European parliamentarians we want to stand up to and we want to say, look, the EU is a project that has been built on common values and fundamental rights are parts of these values. And this is why from the European level um, we also want to do what we can to defend these rights of our citizens. The European Commission's LGBTI equality strategy launched back in November. What impact do you anticipate it will have? No, I think that the strategy is absolutely the basis now for, for moving ahead and making now concrete proposals of what needs to change in order to actually strengthen um, LGBTI human rights uh, inside of the European Union. Um, and this, we want this to be part of the conversation that we have with politicians, with civil society actors, with, you know, basically members of the community about what needs to be done. And the strategy is a set of proposals what from the European level um, can be done. Like, for example, um, there is a proposal to have better legislation against hate crime and hate speech inside of the European Union. There is a proposal for mutual recognition of documents, like, for example, marriage or birth certificates, which would uh, make it much easier for also LGBTI, people from the LGBTI community, rainbow families, um, to enjoy their right to freedom of movement inside of the European Union. Um, but we think that it doesn't stop there because these are European proposals, but we also want to have a conversation with net national legislatures, uh, with, with regional and local um, uh, pe um, people from the regional and local level um, to see what on top of this strategy can be done um, and how we can also, as a European Parliament, support um, these efforts uh, and, and be in touch with the respective um, members of national, regional or local parliaments. And I think that this is, as you can probably imagine, uh, a lot of work. <laughs> this is going to mean a lot of energy, but I think we are ready to um, really um, put a lot of work and energy into it because, as I said, we see this backlash, we see these attacks on LGBTI rights and we on the contrary, want to do more um, in order to, um, to defend and expand BTI people. Alan, how do you see the declaration and strategy from the EGPA's perspective? 
yes, what Terry uh, explained to, to us with all, all details, it's so, sometimes we we have uh, difficulties in our uh, countries to know exactly what happened at the European level because all the details you explained to us, so, uh, uh, some people that have difficulties to realize it, to know it mm. uh, at the, na- the national le- mm-hmm. level. In in some countries, for example, in Italy or in, in Spain uh, or in France, of course, uh, we we don't hear, we don't hear uh, a lot of news from the European uh, Parliament about uh, LGBT uh, issues. Uh, so, it the communication is very important, I think, because uh, we never know exactly what happened. Uh, we, we know that Brussels do something, but we don't. It's a problem to to realize exactly what uh, what happened there. Uh, mm-hmm. Me, me as an activist, I go sometimes to the European Parliament, uh, and I'm, uh, I am in touch with uh, Ilga Europe. So, okay, uh, I know some. In, I have some information, but it's difficult for the European citizens to know exactly. Uh, for example, la, two years ago, I was in Brussels and I spoke about the LGBT. Uh, uh, no. Uh, uh, in Poland, there are no reason for LGBT people. Mm-hmm. And one Polish activist said to me, yes, but it's it's not always like that. In Poland, sometimes it's very nice the, the, to be LGBT and to live uh, with your boyfriend, with your girlfriend, and with police officers. Uh, we also have sometimes a good, uh, uh, good feeling. And I said, yes, but... Uh, what I see on the television, it's not exactly what you as a Polish activist explained to me. And so, you know, we know that there is a lot of problem in Poland and in some uh, some different countries of the rich side of, of Europe. But it's difficult for us to realize exactly. Uh, la- uh, last year, I was in uh, with the Council of Europe. Uh, I was in Madrid for uh, a training a training to uh, to become um, an official trainer for a professional professional police response to fight um, hate crimes against LGBTI person, and we we were uh, 25 police officers from different countries, European countries, and it was one uh, female colleague from uh, uh, Poland, and she was there officially sent by the uh, national police of Poland. And so, of course, we spoke with her and she said, yes, but I work in a police academy. And my boss said to me, you have to go uh, to become an, uh, an official trainer uh, for the, uh, all the questions about uh, how to fight uh, LGBTI uh, attacks. And so, you, you, you know, sometimes it's really difficult for us to, to, realize, to realize exactly the, the the level we know that there is difficulties, but uh, also uh, we we don't know uh, exactly how is the feeling, and that's why the EGPA, the European LGBTI Police Association, uh, want to go every time in in Europe uh, in different LGBTI uh, meetings, conferences, and when we go there, we want to wear our uniform to show that first we have uh, we are. Um, proud to be police officer and we are proud to be a LGBTI person. And like that, 
uh, we speak with the activists, it's of course uh, not easy every time because uh, with the history of our continent, it's always it's still difficult the relation between uh, those two uh, sides. But we are only one world, and we uh, we have to know each other better. Uh, now in Europe, it's not uh, forbidden to be a LGBTI person. So the EGPR really want to to bring the European citizens and the police units closer one more time. And that's why we, we that, that is one of our goals. And the other goals is also the, the training in the police academies and training our uh, colleagues who already work in the stations. So it's two different uh, goals for us. And uh, so we work with the Council of Europe uh, to to try to, to training uh, our colleagues in the Balkans, for example. Um, last year, we met uh, colleagues from six countries of the Balkans, and we spoke with them about the LGBT issues and with uh, activists from Montenegro, from Serbia, North Macedonia, uh, Bosnia, and Kosovo. Uh, and we continue for, for the moment with the COVID. It's, of course, difficult, but we continue to... Uh, uh, to stand on. And uh, at the police level, uh, in every uh, country of the, the European Union, where there is a, an association of LGBTI uh, police officers, uh, this association go to the academies to uh, train the new uh, police officers for the, a better future, a better to tomorrow, to speak about LGBT uh, issues and to speak about that it's not uh, breaking news that uh, in your team uh, at the station you have a uh, female colleague who is lesbian. It's just normal. It's just the life. And it's just uh, to speak about human rights and not about LGBT rights or LGBT person. Well, I think that there are certainly also um, positive examples. And I think people who are standing up from all parts of society um, to this anti-LGBTI sentiment or hostile environment that is being created. But maybe to go a little bit beyond anecdotal evidence, there has been a recent survey done by the Fundamental Rights Agency um, on attitudes of um, LGBTI people towards, for example, the government, how they feel if they have been um, targeted by threats, by attacks, um, and so on. I think it's a very comprehensive um, survey that gives very interesting insight. And one of the lowest numbers um, of people actually having... Um, uh, trust in their government to stand up for their rights um, is coming from the community in Poland, where only 4% of the people who were, who were in this survey say that they actually believe that the government cares about their needs. Um, and I think that this is something that we certainly have to be worried about. Um, and you're absolutely right, Ellen, that um, there needs to be um, a stronger dialogue, especially also between police and the community, because um, when we look at the survey as well, there is still a very low number of people from the community who are, for example, reporting harassment, who are reporting hate crime, who are even reporting assaults and attacks to the police because maybe they feel that they are going to be met with stigma and, uh, you know, with judgment. And so I think that um, the work that you are doing, bringing these two worlds, if you want to say it like this, or these yeah. two communities <laughs> together and also building trust 
this is absolutely crucial so that we can really build a European Union where everybody, despite their sexual orientation, gender identity, can live free from violence and can live free from discrimination. Um, and I think there is a lot to be done, but obviously it's also very important to look at the positive examples and they're definitely there. Yeah, that, that's why uh, when, uh, two years ago it was the lesbian conference in uh, Ukraine, uh, two female colleagues, one from the Netherlands, one were from France, were there. And before we asked to the organization if it was possible uh, to wear our uniform, because we want to show that police officers from Europe are there. And finally, they agree. So um, in, uh, in Ukraine, it was, of course, uh, strange in the beginning because all the lesbian activists they saw two uh, different uh, police officers there with a stand and uh, the, the, the police officer wanted to speak with all the activists but finally it was very nice because it was very interesting for the for the European citizens to to meet our colleagues to speak with them to say oh you are uh, really lesbian you are really police officer in your country and you are here, it's amazing. And that's why it's very important. Also, uh, it's important that the, the European Parliament uh, help us to do it more and more because it's like that, that um, all the government and all the EU can make the, the, the citizens uh, more closer to their own police because that's the goal of the police to, 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 to create a safety sphere. And But if the LGBTI person are afraid of the police unit or if they don't want to to come in the station to make a complaint it's not like that that we can fight uh, against the LGBT attacks mm -hmm. so we are mm -hmm. together to, to to find a solution we all we already um, met the the uh, Europol Europol in the Hague and uh, we uh, we train the all the, the police officer of Europol, and now we want to do the same with the Frontex. I don't know, Terry, if you know uh, what Frontex is. <laughs> I do. Yes. Yeah. Success. And sometimes I speak to people, and and they say yes, but Frontex, Europol, I don't know exactly what they are doing. Yes, but you, of course, yes, I, I knew it. But so I think it's also very important to. To, uh, to to train our colleagues uh, in the, at the borders of Europe because they can uh, yeah, of course they can meet uh, some people some trans person and how call this trans person how to be polite with this trans person and it sometimes it's also a, a problem with the, the 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 police officer to know exactly how to speak to this person and so that's all that all that kind of tools that the EGPA can give to them. And joining me now from Brussels is Katrin Hugendubel from ILGA Europe. Welcome to the podcast, Katrin. What has been the reaction and reception to the European Parliament's declaration of Europe being an LGBTIQ freedom zone? And what would groups like ILGA Europe like to see happen? Yeah, I mean, the so the... The declaration um, of the EU, you know, that the EU is an LGBTIQ freedom zone, I think especially the, the clear majority 
for the resolution in the vote of the European Parliament was a very important moment. It was a very important symbolic gesture, um, especially in times when we see some member states so outspokenly attack LGBTI rights in the European Union. Um, but what we've been focusing on as Silga Europe is really to say it now needs to be followed through with meaningful action. And that meaningful action is not only towards member states that, as I said, outrightly violate LGBTI rights. Um, so in this context, for example, we're still waiting to see from the European Commission infringement procedures against Poland based on the discrimination in employment and thus um, going against the employment directive that the, the declarations adopted yes. in some regions um, could have in effect. But actually, we need to see meaningful action from all member states. Um, I mean, just today, um, Ilga Europe published our, we published our 2021 rainbow map where we measure um, legal advances on the protection of LGBTI rights. And, and what the map clearly shows is an absolute stagnation. Um, we have, for example, seen no legal improvement at all in the area of following uh, family rights over the last 12 months. Um, but we also see, for example, um, reforms on trans rights, on the rights to legal gender recognition, um, stalled and stagnating in 19 countries. Um, and so the meaningful action really needs to come from all sides. We need all member states to fully honor their commitments that they've done in the past and really to reboost um, their, their legislative processes to make sure the right protection is in place also legally because that's often the last resort um, LGBTI people fall back on, especially when times get tougher, as we see at the moment. But also to really develop implementation policies, ensure trainings in different areas, and develop national action plans that really set out a clear um, path for action so that we really step by step make sure that um, the EU, but also all EU member states, really become that LGBTIQ freedom zone that um, that the declaration is calling for. One aspect of the LGBTI equality strategy is mainstreaming, i.e. all EU policies will need to integrate anti-discrimination for LGBTI people. That's an important step, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's one of the very important steps. The the first ever LGBTIQ strategy from the European Commission launched last November is actually doing that. It's no longer a list of actions very closely linked to DG justice, but it's really setting out areas for all DGs. Um, there, you know, LGBTI rights play a role when we look at health and there are important um, initiatives from the European Commission, like, for example, the Beating Cancer Plan, um, but also looking at the EU for Health um, program that just just been launched that can actually play a critical role in advancing LGBTI rights. Similarly, if we look at DG employment, um, the high rates still of discrimination in employment, access to employment, we're seeing the strategy clearly talks about developing guidelines, um, especially um, about the integration in the labour market of trans and intersex people that can really forward those conversations. 
Um, but also the strategy is looking at gender equality policies and, for example, um, um, the upcoming legislation on gender-based violence and domestic violence. And yet again, I think we've, especially during the pandemic, seen such a rise, um, such a sharp increase in domestic violence against LGBTI people. That it's really important that all legislation, be it on EU level or on national level, trying to tackle domestic violence is fully inclusive of LGBTI people. So there are many entry points. And, and again, yes, we're really looking forward to now see how civil society together with the European Commission can actually make sure that these commitments in the strategy that are so important um, will be translated into reality. Of course, all this comes during the coronavirus pandemic in which people are spending more time online and restricted by lockdowns. How has that had an impact, do you think? Yeah, and we've we've really seen this coming through. We did a we did a little impact assessment on the COVID nineteen pandemic uh, spring last year, where we actually did a survey with our member organisations, and that was one of the areas that um, many LGBTI organisations mentioned very clearly: a sharp in, um, increase in people reaching out to them um, because they were in difficult situations, were facing domestic violence, but linking that with actually the problem of the organisations themselves to reorganize all their services, to bring them online. And I think we're only slowly seeing the full impact on the pandemic also on LGBTI organization and LGBTI advocacy. Um, many organizations that were involved in advocacy, that were in you know, ongoing contact with policymakers, really had to shift their services to, to service provisions. Um, some of our member organizations reinvented themselves as food banks, as people were falling through social protection systems. Um, some of them were really trying to, you know, see how to bring the community together at a time when events were not possible anymore. Um, and all of that is having an impact also on their ability to do the, the advocacy work um, that's so needed at a time like this. Earlier this year, Elga Europe reported a rise in hate speech, including online. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, in our annual review, which is a report we're publishing every year um, in, in February, um, we really see we really saw in reports coming from country by country a sharp increase in hate, and that's hate online, as you're mentioning, that's organized hate, that's individual hate, but that's also hate that's translating into violence in the street. So we've, we've really seen an increase in, in both. I think also there, um, we need to see better legislation. We need to see hate speech and, and hate crime legislation that is fully inclusive of sexual orientation, gender identity and sex characteristics um, on national level. But we also need to see, for example, um, now at the European level with the Digital Services Act being developed, how to further um, increase the protection and, and the reactions that are asked from social media um, um, providers, but also really from, from governments to clearly react um, when, when hate is spread online, because we do know that hate online does translate into, into hate in society. It's kind of setting the tone, um, and, and, and that's a very, very worrying trend we're seeing. You mentioned ensuring the strategy and declaration was followed up with legislation. What more, in addition to legislation, would you like to see happen? based on legislation, and this is when member states set out 
you know, trainings, for example, if, 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 if a legislation does include sexual orientation, gender identity and sex characteristics, you then go to the next step of what does implementation really look like. Um, you go to the next step of how do we need to train um, the police forces, but also others involved in, in managing social media to actually see the bias motivated hate and how to react. So legislation is actually... Um, often the starting point for many different very much needed initiatives. What do you consider to be the main challenges ahead facing LGBTI people in Europe and what actions do you consider should be taken to tackle them? Yeah, main challenges is always a difficult concept when you look mm. at human rights but um let me let me try to zoom in uh, maybe in three areas and we we already talked about hate and and i think the rise in hate the rise in violence we're seeing and really across the board um is really worrying and that's um as you mentioned online it's it's um violence and and um in the streets it's violence, kind of hate speech from political leader and leaders and government and how we're actually standing up against that. And it's domestic violence. And we already looked into kind of the rise, rise of that during the pandemic and, and how important it really is that kind of support services and legislation is fully inclusive of LGBTI people. Um, another point I think linked you know, again, something that the pandemic um, shown a much stronger light um, on, and it was, but it was there before, is um, the extent to which LGBTI people experience homelessness. Um, so there have been very, very first evaluations of that. Um, there's an estimation that 25 to 40% of young people experiencing homelessness are um, from the LGBTI community. And, and in cooperation, we've done with, with FIANSA, with the European um, Network on um, Homelessness Service Providers, we're seeing that homelessness services very often just don't have the expertise and the support to really provide safe and welcoming environments for LGBTI people. So that's another priority that we're really trying to, to put on the EU agenda now, the LGBTIQ strategy does acknowledge the problem, but still falls short in kind of setting out what first actions could be on, on European level. Um, and we're really trying to work together with, with MEPs, with the Commission, but also, as I said, with FIANSA, for example, on putting that on the agenda. Um, a, a last point, maybe, sorry, mm -hmm. <laughs> on, on kind of the main challenges is really the, the wave on attacks on trans people and trans rights that we're seeing at the moment, with some organizations actively denying that trans people have a legitimacy and an agency. And I think even more worrying, so trying to play out women's rights against trans rights, so really actively trying to split human rights movements. And we all need to stand very strong against that. Um, in a recent event we did, where we had invited Commissioner Dali, she really clearly said that for her, trans rights and feminism go hand in hand in the human rights framework. Um, and we need to see more political actors, institutions, but also organizations from civil society come out very clearly and say, not in, not in my name, not in our name, um, and, and fully stand behind trans rights. And, and linked to that is really what I was talking about before, that governments need to pick up their commitments on reforming legal gender recognition legislation towards fully recognizing the right of um, self-determination, because really we've seen so many governments stalling these processes 
moving away from commitments they've made. Um, and we really need to see action there to kind of counter the wave of, of transphobia we're seeing at the moment. Thanks for taking the time to join us, Katrin, and also to my other guests, Terry and Alan. I hope that you have enjoyed this episode and found it interesting and informative. You can send us your messages and comments about this episode by recording a voice message or by texting us on our Facebook and Twitter account or just send us an email. Details of how you can do this can be found in the show notes and we look forward to hearing from you. Lastly, please remember to follow or subscribe to our podcast channel and share our podcast link via your social media. I'll be with you soon for another episode of The Thin Pink Line.